All right, open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50 is... We are coming to the conclusion of the book of Jeremiah. And so, chapter 50 is the judgment against Babylon. The judgment against Babylon. Chapter 50 and 51 cover the prophecy of the judgment against Babylon, which at that time was the top nation of the world. It was the first great world power. But it would also be destroyed. And these two chapters, chapter 50 and 51, are the longest of all the messages of judgment. And because they're so long, it suggests the importance of Babylon and the harshness of its punishment uh, to that uh, was, was, you know, it wasn't expected, um, but which was the main concern of the exiles. The main subject of chapter 50 and 51 is the coming destruction of Babylon and the return of the exiles to their homeland. Verses 1 through 10 covers the announcement of Babylon's destruction. Let's begin with chapter 50, verse 1. And it reads, The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. So at the peak of its power, the Babylonian empire seemed to be indestructible immovable as a mountain but again when God is involved and when God is finished using Babylon for his purpose of punishing Judah for their sins God was going to punish and crush Babylon for its own sins and Babylon was destroyed in 539 BC by the Medo-Persians Babylon is used in scripture as a symbol of evil and also it's a type of the world so this message can apply to the end times when God wipes out all evil once and for all. Verses 2 and 3. Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim, do not conceal it. Say Babylon is taken, Bel is shamed, Merodach is broken in pieces, her idols are humiliated, her images are broken in pieces. Verse 3. For out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein, and they shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. So the Lord tells Jeremiah, tell everyone about the coming capture of Babylon. Tell them, Bel is ashamed. The city would be conquered. The idols they trusted in would be humiliated most especially Bel and Merodach. Now, Merodach is also spelled M-A-R-D-U-K, Mike Marduk. These gods and their city would be broken in pieces by the coming judgment of God. The name Bel means Lord, and it was the, little, it was the title of the Sumerian storm god uh, Enlil. And when Merodach became head of the Babylonian gods in the second millennium BC, he received the name Bel also. The word translated idols in verse 2 is an unusual one. Unusual one. It's not the usual Hebrew term for idols. It literally means dung pellets, meaning balls of excrement. It's applied to pagan idols. And Ezekiel used the word some 38 times. It was a deliberate mockery of the idols of the people of Babylon. 
Unexpectedly, the nation that earlier was the enemy of the north would now be attacked from the north, according to verse 3 here. The Medes, who formed the main part of Cyrus' army, was to the north or northeast of Babylon. The nation from the north was the Medo-Persian nation, a partner with Medo-Persia that would become the next world power. Cyrus unexpectedly took the city of Babylon by surprise and brought Babylon down in 539 B.C. The total destruction of the city was accomplished later by Persian kings. Verses 4 and 5. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come. They and the children of Judah together with continual weeping, they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a permanent covenant that will not be forgotten. So the overthrow of the Babylonians would be a sign to the exile for both Israel and Judah. It would be a sign to repent and to prepare to go back home. And in that time, they'd renew the everlasting covenant that they had neglected. Verses 6 and 7. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, or their rulers had led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from, uh, from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. All who found them have devoured them, and their adversaries said, We have not offended, because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers." So in these verses 6 and 7, God is speaking, and he uses the shepherd and the sheep comparison. He accused Judah's leaders, the shepherds, of leading the people astray and scattering them from mountains, from the mountains to the hills, without having a resting place. And that's because they encouraged the people to take part in idolatrous practices that God hated so much. And they forgot their own resting place, Jeremiah says in verse 6, or God says in verse 6, which could be a a reference to the temple. They were like sheep with no protection, and they were being devoured by others. Their enemies argued, it says that they they weren't guilty for what they did. They weren't guilty for devouring the the Israelites because they had sinned against God. So they're basically getting what what they deserved in in their eyes. Verses 8 through 10. Move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be like the rams before the flocks. For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured, and their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain, and Chaldea shall become plunder. And all who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. So the Lord warned the people to run from Babylon like the male goats at first, uh, that are first to rush out of the sheepfold when the gate is opened. There was a sense of urgency in God's voice because God was about to bring a group of nations against Babylon. The arrows... It says in verse 9, their arrows, they would hit their targets just as sure as the victorious soldiers returned from battle with the spoils of victory. The enemy was going to just ransack Babylon 
until it had taken everything that it wanted. And Babylon's fate is the evidence. All right, it's the testimony of the truth that you can be sure your sin will find you out. And the phrase, be sure your sin will find you out, in Numbers 32, 23, it's used a lot. You know, when we, when we share and we witness with people and it's used in evangelism, you know, we say, hey, your sin will find you out. You can't hide it. God knows it and it will be exposed. It's used a lot, like I said, in evangelism when we're inviting people uh, to the Lord. And it can be used in that way. But the original, the original intent was to warn God's people that their sin would be their failure to keep their vow and their unwillingness to help their brothers and sisters in the work that God had called them to do. And then verses 11 through 17 covers the explanation for Babylon's punishment. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. Because, here's the, okay, here's the reason for the explanation for their punishment. Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage. Because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain. And you bellow like bulls. Your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She, bore who you, uh, she who bore you shall be ashamed. And behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. And everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all of her plagues. God promised this judgment against Babylon. Why? Because they took uncalled for pleasure in being the instrument that God used in judgment against his people. Babylon was rejoicing in its victory over God's inheritance. God's inheritance would be the land that God had given his people. And Babylon was also ripe for judgment because they were proud and they were self-satisfied. He says in verse 11, they were like a high-spirited heifer threshing grain and they would neigh like stallions. Your mother, verse 12 says, the words your mother, speaking of Babylon, would be ashamed like a mother who's disgraced by the bad behavior of her child. Babylon, which had been first among the nations, would now become the least of the nations. Babylon would be as desolate, as barren as the desert. And those who saw its ruins, those who saw it destroyed, they would be shocked. Because again, it was something they wouldn't have expected. And they would ridicule what had happened to them. Verse 14 and through 16. He said, put yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around. She has given her hand. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down, for it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her as she has done so do to her. Cut off, the sh- the, cut, off, cut off the sower from Babylon and him who handles the sickle at harvest time. For fear of the oppressing sword, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. So the Lord here is calling on the enemy in these verses to start the attack of Babylon. And he says, spare no arrows. In other words, don't spare any of your weapons. Go all out. Take Babylon down because Babylon has sinned against the Lord. The Babylonians would learn, just like David did, that all sin is against God. 
And we need to understand that all sin is against God and it will be punished. David wrote this in Psalm 51.4. He said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Remember when he sinned against Bathsheba and he finally confessed his sin? You know, he was trying to hide it and, and keep from confessing it. And when he came to that realization that, you know, hey, I, I really messed up. He said, against you only have I sinned, Lord, and I've done this evil in your sight. Also, we see the same thing, remember, in Joseph's great temptation with Potiphar's wife in Genesis. Remember, Joseph said to her, there is no greater in this house than I. Nor has he kept, speaking of Potiphar, your husband, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Psalm 39.9. It took a whole lot of courage and determination on Joseph's part to fight this battle of temptation with, Pharaoh's, with Potiphar's wife every single day. For however long she was trying to seduce him to sleep with her. Every day he had to face this, this great temptation. And, and, but he did it. And he explained to her why he wouldn't go along with her seduction. He told her first off, look, you're another man's wife. And that man, your husband, is my master. And secondly, he said, he, said, he trusts me. He was, you know, my, my master trusts me. And I don't want to violate and lose his trust. And the third thing he told her is, look, even if nobody else finds out that you and I slept together, God would know about it and he would be displeased. All Potiphar's wife asked for was just a moment of pleasure. But to Joseph, this was considered a great wickedness against God. And always remember, Satan will tell you, hey, it's it's." It's just for a moment, man. Nobody will know. Nobody will find out. It's just you and her or whatever it might be. And, and always remember that a moment of pleasure can bring a lifetime of misery. That's the part that, God, that, that Satan never tells you. So Babylon's sin against the Lord was its attack on Judah. Again, notice what verse 15 says here. It describes the Lord's vengeance on Babylon. It says, soldiers around Babylon shout the cry of victory. Babylon has surrendered. Her walls and her towers have been pulled down. The Lord is giving her people the punishment they deserve. You nations should give Babylon the punishment that she deserves. Babylon was surrounded on every side. And Babylon surrendered. And that's what's meant by the word in verse 15. She has given her hand. In other words, she's just given her hand. Babylon, she's given her hand. She's just surrendered to those that surround her. It's a gesture of submission. She had given her hand is a gesture of submission. Verse 15 says, her walls will be thrown down. The walls will be torn down. Because of the invasion, the farmers wouldn't be able to plant their crops or harvest them. So it would be a convenient time for the exiles to leave Babylon and go back to their own land. Verse 17 Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria devoured him. Now at last this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. So the Holy Spirit now compares Israel to a bunch of sheep that have been scattered and eaten by lions. 
The first lion that ate up Israel was the king of Assyria, King Sargon, in uh, the second in 722 B.C. The most recent lion, the second lion to break Israel's bones, was King Nebuchadnezzar. And they acted against Israel, both of these kings, they acted against Israel like a lion with a sheep, which has been caught. First, they devour its flesh, all of its flesh, then they break all of the bones to get out the marrow. Verses 18 through 20 now covers the restoration of Israel. Verse 18, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. But I will bring back Israel to his home. And he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on, the, on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. And in those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those, notice, I will pardon those whom I preserve. It seems like nations and people are slow to learn its lessons. Just like God had punished the king of Assyria, he would punish the king of Babylon. Even after the death of the last Assyrian rulers, Assyria quickly deteriorated and was overthrown by the Babylonians in 612 B.C. with the taking of Nineveh. Now Babylon was getting ready to face a similar fate. Like a shepherd leading the flock to pasture, God was going to bring Israel back to its own land where it would have its appetite satisfied. Like sheep being led to pasture that are hungry and a need to eat. He's going to do that with God's people and their, their appetite for the homeland would be satisfied. And verse 20 says, And in those days and in that time, no sin or guilt would be found in Israel or Judah. Why? Because God would have forgiven the remnant. He would spare them. Again, we see the grace of God. This is another wonderful promise in the great promises of the new covenant that God made with his people. A part of the restoration and salvation of Israel. God promised to both pardon and preserve Israel. Now, a lot of people think that this is a messianic word, so it could be. Verses 21 through 32 covers God's wrath against Babylon. Look at verse 21. Go up against the land of Merathame, against it, and against the inhabitants of Pekod. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. So God spoke against specific areas of Babylon. And the Lord gave orders to the enemy to attack and totally destroy the people of Merathame, which was a place, and Pekod was the name of a tribe. So the enemy was ordered to go after them and completely destroy them. Verse 22 through 24. A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. And I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You have been found and, and also caught because you have contended against the Lord. The sound of battle here in these verses suggests the great destruction that was being inflicted on the Babylonians. The Lord says in verse 23, notice how broken and shattered the hammer is of the whole earth. Now, the hammer was Babylon. 
the hammer being Babylon that had smashed other nations, that had destroyed other nations without mercy, was now going to be shattered and pounded into submission and desolation itself. And Jeremiah gives credit to God for Babylon's defeat. Remember, credit was given to the guidance of Marduk for the same event. I'm sorry, here uh, credit was given to guidance, uh, the guidance of Marduk for the same event, but Jeremiah is giving God, for Bab- uh, credit, uh, God credit for Babylon's defeat. Remember earlier, the Israelites gained the queen of heaven credit for their blessing instead of the Lord. Babylon has deliberately and without shame opposed God. They set up enemies against God. They raised rebellion against God. And they said in verse 23, notice, God says, God said to them in verse 20, I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped and you are not aware of it. You have been found out. You've been caught. And it says, here's why. Notice, because you have contended against the Lord. We need to take note here. If we contend and strive against the Lord, pretty soon you're going to find yourself outmatched, outsmarted, and overpowered. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 6.10, He, speaking of man, cannot contend with him. That is God. Man cannot contend with God. It says, who is mightier than he. And in this verse... Ecclesiastes 6.10, in this verse, Solomon speaks about the weakness of man and how we find ourselves in that uncomfortable decision and position in trying to fight God, to contend with Him. There's a scripture in Isaiah that says, Woe to him who strives with his maker, Isaiah 45.9. And a lot of people find themselves striving with God. And, And probably all of us at one time or another in our lifetime find ourselves at odds with God, striving with Him. You know, there's, there's a couple of things to make note of about a, a person who strives with God. First of all, it's not a good idea to strive with God, to contend with God, to fight against God. How can you hope to win striving with God? Going against Him, who is mightier than you, you know, who, who can contend with him? Secondly, if you do win, you've really lost. If God d- d- did just give in and say, you know what? You don't want to listen to me? You, you know, have your way. You've really lost. If you strive with God and you win, then you have really lost because God's way is the best thing that could ever happen to you. Our problem is we don't see it that way. And that's because we can't see future we can't see god's purpose for us we can't see the things that god can see our striving with god our fighting with god arguing with god comes from our limited understanding as he points out in ecclesiastes 6 12 where solomon says for who knows what is good for man in life we think we know what's best for us and then we act accordingly we make decisions based on what we think is best for our life Do you honestly think you know what's good for you? As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 6.12, who can tell a man what will happen after him? You see, you don't know the future. We don't know the future. We don't know what it holds for us. 
So then we find ourselves striving with God because we really have in our mind our own ideas of what is best for me. But I really don't know what's best for me. I think I do. I contend with God because things are happening in my life that I think, Lord, this is horrible. Why, would, why in the world would you allow this to happen to me? This makes no sense. It's not good for anybody. So I, 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 I argue with God. I contend with God. Because you see, I can't see the purposes of God. I don't know the purposes of God because I don't know what the future holds for me. I can't see what God sees. I don't know what God knows. You see, but that's the kind of God we need. That's the kind of God I want. Lord, you can see ahead of me. You know what's going to happen ahead of me. So you know what? Arrange my life. Adjust my life to meet that need because I don't know. I don't know what to do. I probably wouldn't know what to do. And most of the time, our contention with God comes over the fact, because of the fact that we don't know what's really good for us. And we don't know what's going on to take place in the future. So we find ourselves contending with God over the circumstances in our life that we don't fully understand. Why fight against God? You can't win. The Greeks had a proverb that went something like this. The dice of the gods are loaded. And that's exactly what God says in his word. God says, don't gamble with me. Don't strive with me. Don't think that you can fight me and win. He says, let us come aside. Let us get together and let you and I work this thing out. Isaiah 118, God says, come now and let us, you and me, reason together, says the Lord. Let us reason together. Don't gamble with God because when he rolls the dice, he knows exactly how they're going to land. You don't. Verses 25 through 27. The Lord has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation, for this is the work of the Lord, God of hosts, in the land of, of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the far, farthest border, open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps of ruins, and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Slay all her bulls, let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them! For their day has come, the time of their punishment. So verse 25 continues to emphasize the Lord as the one bringing Babylon's destruction. And it was his arsenal and his weapons that would destroy Babylon, even though they would be, you know, used by human armies. Now think of that. God has an arsenal. The means and the, and the weapons that he has are limitless. Now, I thought about that as, as being in the military when I was stationed in Denangavia. Now, we had an armory, and it's where our weapons were, you know, if, if we got overrun on the base. And we'd go there, and we'd get our weapons. But there were just the M16s. God has an arsenal. He has everything that's needed to, to, to win that battle. And so, you know, he, 
he said, go to, the, go to an armory. He says, his, take every arsenal, all of his weapons that would destroy Babylon, even though, again, they would be used by man. And verse 26 continues the picture of the looting and the desecration of Babylon. The enemy would rob Babylon's granaries and loot those granaries. And, you know, and, they would, and the enemy would take these large quantities of grains as the spoils of war. And then it says here, notice, the order to kill all her bulls. That could be interpreted literally, again, but think about it. Why would you know, they kill all of their bulls? But it may refer to Babylon's warriors. That is, kill all of the best warriors Babylon has, which is probably the better interpretation because, again, killing the young bulls in verse 27, notice, is described as the time of the punishment for their day has come. So it would make more sense that it would be their, their, their warriors um, than literal bulls. Verse 28. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. <clears throat> those fugitives and refugee, refugees from Babylon going back to Zion, which maybe it was the Temple Hill or going back to Jerusalem, they would bring the news of Babylon's destruction to them. Earlier, News of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon in 587 B.C. was taken to Babylon by a refugee. They would acknowledge that the Lord had taken vengeance for his temple. And the temple was destroyed in 587 B.C. But vengeance didn't come for almost 50 years when Persia overran Babylon in 539 B.C. Verses 29 and 30. Called together the archers against Babylon... All you who bend the bow, encamp against it all around. Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all she has done to her, for she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men shall fall in the streets, and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. The description of Babylon's expected destruction continues in these verses. Archers were called in order to surround Babylon and to not let anybody escape. Babylon had defied the Lord. Verse 30 repeats what Jeremiah said in chapter 49, verse 26, when he used it in regard to Damascus. Verse 31 and 32. Behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the time that I will punish you. Verse 32, the most proud shall stumble and fall and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities and it will devour, devour all around him. Babylon's sin was pride and is pointed out here as the reason for its punishment. Babylon is addressed here, notice, as almost haughty one. No one would be able to help them when that time comes. The Lord would light a fire in its cities, it says here. And then verses 33 through 40 covers the desolation of Babylon. So here now, Jeremiah returns to the present situation. The Lord acknowledged that the people of Israel and Judah were being oppressed, and their captors wouldn't let them go. But Babylon's conqueror would. Their release would come through their strong redeemer. He would defend them. Like a counselor, a lawyer would defend a, a person in, in a court case. He would bring rest to the land, but unrest to Babylon. Look at verse 33 and 34. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel have oppressed, I'm sorry, the children of Israel were oppressed along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them, held them fast and they have refused to let them go. <clears throat> Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name and he will thoroughly plead their case, again like a, a, a counselor in, in court, that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. So, Again, the people of Judah, and Israel and Judah, were being held captors by uh, those who refused to let them go. But again, the Redeemer is going to do that. The Redeemer is strong. So the answer was that, uh, that, that the Redeemer, none other than the Lord God Almighty, would return their land. Redeemer is the, it says their Redeemer is strong, and the Lord of hosts is his name. So he tells them, your Redeemer is strong. I will trust in the Lord. I will not fear what man can do to me. And so he, he vowed to defend their case by giving them rest in their own land while giving unrest or bringing judgment to those living in Babylon. Verse 35 through 38. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon and against her princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers, and they, will, uh, and they will be fools. A sword is against her mighty men, and they will be dismayed. A sword is against their horses, against their chariots, and against all the mixed peoples who are in their midst. And they will become like women. A sword is against her treasures, and they will be robbed. A drought is against her waters, and they will be dried up. For it is the land of carved images, and they are insane. Notice, they are insane with their idols. The word sword is mentioned five times here in these verses. Now, repetition, uh, repetition, the repetition of words was used to express emphasis. In other words, the sword would be directed against all of those living in Babylon. It would be used against the officials, against the wise men, its false prophets, and its warriors. So like Israel's prophets, Babylon's false prophets would be made to look foolish. And its, way, its warriors would be filled with great fear. The sword would also fall upon its horses and chariots. The foreigners, that is the mixed people here, its soldiers for hire, that is its mercenaries, would become like women. Now, this is an, an insult to these people, these mixed uh, people and, and, and the soldiers for hire. He said they would become like women. But the insulting comparison to women has to be understood in light of the cultural setting of those times, which considered women weak and fearful. And then also it says a terrible drought would dry up Babylon's water supply. Verse 39 through 40. There the wild beast, therefore the wild beasts shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in, uh, dwelt in from generation to generation. Babylon would be deserted and it would become nothing but a hangout for the desert animals and the jackals. Babylon's destruction would be so complete that it could only be compared to the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then verses 41 through 46 covers Babylon's helplessness. Look at 41 through 43. Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. 
Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses set in array like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hand grows feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him, pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Now, these verses were directed toward Babylon, all right, Uh, expecting the coming of an army of people from the north, a partnership. It was a partnership of nations and rulers that were armed with bows and spears that would attack Babylon. So again, these verses are directed toward Babylon. He says, expect the coming of an army, these people from the north. They shall not show mercy, he said in verse 42. Their charging horses were going to sound like the roaring of the sea, and there would be, and there would be so many of them. Babylon's rulers would be paralyzed by fear, and they would be gripped by suffering like a woman in labor. We'll close with verses 44 through 46. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flocks shall draw them out. Surely he will make their dwelling place desolate with them. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles and the cry is heard among the nations. Like a lion, viciously and suddenly, in an instant, attacking lambs god is going to attack babylon and the rest of the world is going to tremble at his judgment of babylon and the cry of babylon would be heard among all the nations when it fell father once again we thank you for your word and father we help us to learn the lesson that seems to be the the central theme here and that is contending with you god lord no matter what we think, no matter how strong we think we might be or how wise we might be, Lord, think we might be, God, we can't contend with you. We can't argue with you. We can't fight with you. We'll never win, Lord. For you are almighty, all wise, infinite God. Lord, help us to understand that you know all things. Help us to submit, God, to the circumstances that, that we experience, Lord, the situations that we may encounter, Lord, knowing that you know all things, God, and you know how they're going to turn out. So, Father, we thank you, God, that you are all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, Lord. So we thank you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.